Welcome back to Redline, a millennial tale of passionate love in the combative workplace set in Boston. Hop on board for the next episode of Pia's Tale here on Redline. The next Redline train to Alewife is now arriving. Another week passed, and Saturday arrived, the day I was to deliver Tian's portrait. Excitement got me up early, but it wasn't only the painting. I was psyched to stretch a new canvas and start my own self-portrait. It was going to be surreal, capturing the feelings of my current life. Not as jarring as Monk Scream, with its gaping mouth of psychic pain, but I knew the end loomed for Rod and me, even though I foolishly still clung to a thread of hope. A beautiful day was waiting, sunny with a light spring breeze. I decided to leave early for the city, stroll the public garden and picturesque downtown. Rod got up just as I was packing my bag. He knew it was my day to meet Tian and kept silent as he brewed a latte from his big machine and took up his position on the couch with his computer. So, hon, we'll have a nice dinner out tonight. That'll be fun. Yup. And tomorrow, we have the Hokusai show. Yup. Ugh, have you seen the weather today? Let's take a walk this afternoon. Bigelow Park, scene of our first date. Yeah, we were screwing each other within the hour. Seems so long ago. So, where's your famous painting? You mean Tian? At school. I'm picking it up now. Aren't you leaving rather early? Yeah, but I'm going to stretch a canvas at the studio. I want to do a self-portrait for the Potter show. Something completely different. Oh, that'll be interesting. Another nude with boobs? Nope, an abstract. Something surreal. Hmm. I never got to see the billionaires. Just the photo. You'll see it at the gallery. You know, I really want to invite Tian to our party. All my other clients are coming. You mean like what? Wafa? No, he's not coming, and don't bring it up again. I left, and as soon as I hit the outdoors, I felt the rush of freedom from our suffocating atmosphere. A few minutes later, alone in my studio sanctuary, I stretched a canvas for my self-portrait and imagined the delicious seepings from my subconscious that would transport me to another realm, one that existed separately from reality. I had no idea what would take shape, but whatever it was would be me. Later that morning, after a long walk through the public garden and back bay, I got Tian's portrait from my car and carried it up Beacon Street to his door. He answered my ring with a big smile and relieved me of the canvas that was wrapped in a sheet. At last, I can't wait to see it. I followed him upstairs to the solarium for the unveiling, my heart beating fast in anticipation. He looked at the painting for a long time with fascinated eyes. Well, I finally said, well, what? Obviously, I love it. It's fabulous. And I don't mean the guy. I mean the painting. I'm looking at the brushwork, the detail, all the subtlety, the mastery. Gee, thanks. I'm so glad you like it. Now, we have to find a place to hang it where I can see it all the time. Your office? Uh-uh. Too much vanity on display. We can decide later. It's too beautiful a day to miss. What do you say we walk to the north end and find lunch outside? Sure, let's do that. So we headed out into the spring day and made our way through the historic streets, passing the greenery burying ground, the old red brick state house, and Faneuil Hall. You're so lucky, Tian, to live right smack in the middle of Boston. I love it. 
and I hope your next job's right here so we can be neighbors and take walks every day. <laughs> Dreamland. Speaking of dreams, I had a funny daydream while driving here today. Tell me, what if we're really just part of a hugely complex video game called the universe? That another intelligence, a god or a soupy blob or something entirely immaterial like a vibration, invented for its own entertainment. Oh, you mean right now we're just figures in a video game? Kind of like the Truman Show. Kind of, but those characters were real. In this game, that other intelligence, what, whatever it is, started the game with a basic framework, the planet Earth. And then, to keep the entertainment going, things kept getting added, like species and food chains, civilizations, mythologies, religions, wars, scientific discoveries, the arts. Then came the fun concept of the Big Bang, and galaxies and black holes, evolution and DNA. Think what fun it was for the game player to come up with diseases and medicine, medical technology. Must have taken years to add everything in, Tian said. Yeah, just like our history. Think of it, adding in social classes and tyrannies, torture, slaves, crime, and most important, the basic premise of suffering for all species. Huh. To think we're just inside a device and experiencing the wonders of spring, but also, elsewhere, nature's catastrophes. Yes, climate change is a new angle for the game player. Lots of global conflict there. Conflict's important. It's what makes the game fun. Culture for healing. Right! The blob added creativity to offset suffering. Humans needed something besides religion to uplift their beaten spirits, so we have music, art, literature, architecture, invention. But overall, the game's predicated on violence and survival. And because we're just part of a game, we've never been able to figure out why there's a universe to begin with, and why it keeps expanding, and what our purpose is. It all makes sense now. Thank you for this daydream. But how does it all end? the only way it can, in a giant apocalypse. And at that time, we'll think we're actually experiencing that final disaster, like like the characters in the road, but we're just game pieces programmed with feelings. Tian put his arm around me as we crossed the street to enter the quaint north end. I'm so glad we're actually real, and I'm not just programmed to know you. Don't be so sure. Why is life so crazy if we're real? Only a game could be so chaotic. We found a pizzeria on a side street near Paul Revere's house and enjoyed lunch together. Tian told me about his summer plans. China, as soon as school gets out, mostly in Beijing. May's eager to see our family and old friends. And guess what? Charles is coming too. I have him signed up for language and art classes, and we planned a few expeditions. What a great opportunity. You should come too. See the art, the history. <laughs> Another dream. Maybe next year, when your life isn't so complicated. And what about this engagement party Wafa told me about? Is it for real? She invited me to tag along with her, and I want to. Oh, I'm not sure you should. Rod's totally jealous of you. I hope for good reason. Anyhow, I'm willing to take the risk. I'd love to come. Okay. I'd love for you to come, too. And somehow it'll all work out. Just my thought, time takes care of everything. If you say so. 
After lunch, we walked to my car in the common garage and said goodbye at the door. What are you doing tomorrow? Tian asked. Tennis and the museum for the Hokusai show. Oh, yeah, I've been meaning to see that. And it closes soon, doesn't it? Hmm, maybe I can turn my afternoon meeting into a museum visit. That way you and I might run into each other. I'll see what I can do. We hugged goodbye, and he held on extra long, but so did I. In fact, it was really hard for both of us to resist a kiss. Back at home, I never mentioned to Rod that Wafa had invited Tian to our party. And Rod never asked about my outing, and I didn't bring it up. We went to the park for a walk, but barely spoke. And we had the same disconnect over our restaurant dinner that night. Rod was lost inside his head where battle scenes raged, and he tried to figure out an escape without loss of blood or pride. Sunday morning, we played tennis, which mended some of our distance. And after lunch, I dressed nicely for the museum, knowing we might run into Tian. The exhibition was excellent, and Rod was totally absorbed in it, especially the film on block printing. The process requires utter precision in positioning handmade paper on different blocks for each color in the print. The painstaking work resulted in scenes or stories in soft but also brilliant colors. And I had no idea Hokusai had worked in so many genres, being mostly familiar with his iconic blue and white wave that looked like a foaming, menacing claw from a fairy tale. The print was much smaller than I had imagined, given its visual impact. We exited the exhibition in a dreamy state and joined the reverberating throng in the hallway. I didn't hear Tian calling my name until Rod nudged me. Pia, it's your friend. He's saying hello to you. Oh, Tian, hi. And Ambrose, hi, how are you? Where's Lori? Rod asked. Oh, she uh, took Taylor to a, a birthday party. Ambrose and I had a business meeting scheduled and decided to see the show first. What's the highlight? The Phoenix, Rod said. Oh, yeah, I've heard about the Phoenix, Tian said. And be sure to see the film. It shows you how incredibly hard it is to make one of those prints. Thanks, Rod. I'll be sure to catch that. Oh, and by the way, I had lunch with Wafa on Friday. She invited me to come along with her to your party. I hope that'll be all right. I'd love to celebrate with you. Rod's face froze, but only for a second. He managed a polite reply. Yeah, that'll be fine. We look forward to seeing you. We parted ways after that. Tian and Ambrose to the exhibition's entrance and Rod and I to the front door. Well, you got what you wanted. Mr. Importance coming to your party. Our party, Rod. And I'm sure it'll be okay. Lots of people will be there. You won't even notice him. I'll be noticing him all right. Noticing him, noticing you. Do you think I can't see the way he looks at you? I wonder why those two were together. Dunno, don't care. They're probably cooking up a scheme to buy the museum. I put my arm around him as we pushed through the big carved wood and iron-trimmed central doors. A gush of air flushed over my face. Oh, it felt so good. Rod and I always needed the outdoors to air the claustrophobia between us. The next two weeks in April witnessed a chain of events, some of them predictable, such as the death sentence for the Marathon Bomber, which the radio discussed for days, debating whether life imprisonment would have been a better verdict because the death sentence meant appeals that would go on forever, preventing a sense of closure for the survivors. Hillary Clinton announced her candidacy, and the city geared up for its annual emotional marathon. At the school, my portrait of Tian appeared in the Haskell Voice, along with an article about his recent gifts to the school. 
A caption credited the portrait to me and suggested the painting might one day hang in the administration building, along with other portraits of past illustrious leaders. I knew Tian was behind the publicity. Then came the great news. The Peabody School in Back Bay called me for an interview, and it went well. I didn't dare to hope for the job, but I did. I would save my future and also be close to my coveted red line. Then, days before our misnamed engagement party, as it was feeling much more like a farewell party, events struck the school. Wafa resigned with a loud commotion and sent a scathing letter to the board about Lori's bullying behavior. She even threatened a racial discrimination suit. Lori stayed home with a back problem until Wafa had cleared out. Dale pleaded with Wafa to stick it out until the festival, offering her an office in the student center with no further interface with Lori. But Wafa refused. My resignation's necessary for the school to wake up and recognize how truly disastrous Lori Schlusser is for the school's health, she told him and all the rest of us more than once. A day or two later, a second torpedo hit us. Did you hear? Dixie said breathlessly as she came into the studio. No, what? Tian bought the school. He bought it. What? How? Ambrose signed the deed over to him. What? (laughs) How can that happen? What does it mean? It means the end of an enemy occupation. (laughs) Hey, you might get your job back. Maybe Tian will be our next dean. (laughs) But why would Ambrose do that? Rumor has it, he got plastered at the Mandarin. The story went viral, obviously leaked by Tian. It was in the Globe, and our local NPR station interviewed Tian. I listened to the broadcast later that night on my computer. Everyone wants to know how you purchased the school. I mean, for Boston, this is quite an event. The school's been in the same family for more than a hundred years, with direct ties to Emerson and transcendentalists. All of our colleagues, including the BBC and China News Service, want to know what happened. Well, Jerry, it wasn't as complicated as it might seem. It was a simple business transaction, the kind I do every day as a real estate developer. I offered Mr. Haskell the right price. And we'd all love to know what that price was. (laughs) I'm sure you would. But I'm not at liberty to disclose it, though eventually you'll be able to find it in the public record. Let's just say I made it worth it to Mr. Haskell. Uh, if you don't mind, I'd also like to ask one more somewhat sensitive question. Sure, go ahead. I'm sure you've heard the rumors. Could you tell our listeners if they're true? I'll do my best. Good. Then is it true Mr. Haskell was inebriated when he signed the deed? We've heard rumors about several rounds of double martinis at the Mandarin. We signed the deal at the Mandarin, but I don't recall how many martinis Mr. Haskell had. I believe he was able to leave on his own without assistance, but you could check that detail with the maitre d'. And for our listeners, why do you want the school? Ah, good question, Jerry. I want it for several reasons. First, it's an unusual, exceptionally creative place. Have you ever seen it? My daughter May's there, and I see how the kids discover their special talents and open up to their imaginations. But the school could also use some updates relative to our times and even more enlightenment than it's already known for. I sat incredulous when the interview ended. Tian's purchase was like a hilarious charade, but it was real and legally binding. The old and eminent Haskell School, started in the 1880s by austere and idealistic sisters, had suddenly changed hands from a Brahmin dynasty to a newly minted American citizen, a Chinese investor. (laughs) Indeed, it seemed perfectly suited to the times. 
thank you for listening to episode 20 of Redline. Redline is written by G.D. Spilsbury and narrated by Anna Gravelle, directed and produced by Fred Greenhalge, with assistant producer Grace Waldron. Redline is dedicated to Jim Cantor and Brooke Lambert. If you've enjoyed this Redline story, please tell your friends about us and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Leaving reviews allows us to get more listeners, like yourself, so we can keep bringing you good stories. Learn more about Redline at redlinepodcast.com. That's redlinepodcast.com.